Welcome to the very first episode of TI Talks, a new tech-informed podcast exploring technology through the eyes of industry experts. I'm your host, Ricky, and we're kicking things off with our first episode with James Murray, Editor-in-Chief of Business Green. Renowned commentator of the low-carbon economy, James brings a wealth of experience and expertise, from environmental journalism to green business issues and recognition, including being named Digital Editor of the Year at the AOP Awards. Excited to have you along for this journey. Let's kick things off. I'm joined today by James Murray, who is the Editor-in-Chief of Business Green, um, which, as I understand, is celebrating its 16th birthday this year. So, happy birthday. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. I'm wondering if you can um, just give us like a short introduction to yourself um, and, and Business Green. Yeah, so uh, as I said, Business Green's been going 16 years. I don't quite know where the time's gone. It's absolutely um, flown by. And we kind of, you know, we do what it says on the tin, really. We're a, we're a media brand uh, reporting daily on the green economy, on, on the, the, the sort of thousands, if not millions of green businesses around the world that are trying to advance the net zero transition and build a sort of more sustainable, um, in every sense of the world, economy for all, basically. That's the, the, the central premise behind it. And um, I mean, we say when we launched, it was we were kind of looking to fill a bit of a gap in the market because there was this perception that kind of, you know, green issues were a bit of a niche um, that, you know, that wasn't a particularly serious part of modern business or the perception that kind of businesses are the devil and they're the ones causing all environmental problems and uh, we have to smash capitalism. Um, and, and we always felt that, you know, there's a there is a middle ground there. There is, you know, there are sustainable progressive businesses that are trying to do the right thing and that are advancing clean technologies and innovation um and and it felt that they were a bit underserved in the media environment so we we tried to try to fill that gap and have, have been doing so ever since and now here you are today 16 years old and you've got your net zero festival coming up shortly we'll talk about that a bit later but i wonder if you could just on the topic of, of you know the last 16 years how has the landscape changed i mean it's it's kind of it's done two things at once. It's kind of changed beyond all recognition, and yet a lot of the same issues and challenges and problems remain exactly the same. Like you know, everything's different, and everything, everything stays the same, which I suppose is kind of a kind of like life itself in many ways. Um, but but I mean, the, the the things that have changed are just beyond beyond recognition. I mean, I, I was thinking the other day that like when we launched, we were writing stories about electric vehicles, and they were about the the G whiz. I don't know if any of the listeners remember that that little sort of basically glorified golf cart that was put out on the roads and was really popular for a time. And it was just like, this was the, the future of motoring was this really quite ugly little car that was looked like it would get blown over in the wind. Um, and, and that was, you know, that was only 12 years ago. And then in, since then we now have, you know, the biggest and most disruptive automotive brand on the in the world is tesla which has just sort of completely transformed the landscape and then after that breakthrough every single pretty much every single global auto manufacturer in the world is now committed to kind of fully electrifying their fleet there's scores of different electric vehicle models you can buy they're all increasingly doing ranges of like 300 400 miles on a charge and and the market demand is growing close to exponentially so it's kind of you know it's gone from this almost cottage industry to something that is transforming one of the world's biggest and most iconic industries. And and you see that everywhere. I mean, exactly the same thing's happening in the energy space where not a lot of people are fully aware of it. But, you know, the UK, as an example, has gone from, in the last 12, 15 years or so, has gone from, you know, 40% of its energy coming from coal and, you know, 70, 80% plus reliant on fossil fuels. 
to a situation where we have, I think we've only got like one coal plant left and over half of our power every day comes from renewables and nuclear and is, is completely clean. And again, growing not quite exponentially, but growing incredibly fast, we are seeing fossil fuels kind of pushed off the grid. And, and that's happening globally as well. That's being replicated in markets all around the world, including in some emerging economies as well. So, you know, it, it has gone from this, as I say, this sort of small scale niche concern to multi-billion dollar industries that are redefining the core kind of energy commodities consumer markets that underpin the global economy. So there's been that immense transformation. The flip side of all that is that, you know, we haven't made nearly fast enough progress. You know, we've made this incredibly rapid progress, but it's still nowhere near what's needed to head off the scale of climate impacts and risks that are coming down the line. Um, and I, I sort of often say that on this agenda, people don't understand how big and exciting the net zero transition is. And they also don't understand how utterly terrifying the climate impacts are that are potentially coming down the line. Uh, and of course, that we're already seeing. So you kind of, you have this tension in that lots has changed, but then equally, when we set up, there were these terrifying environmental challenges. And now 16 years on those terrifying environmental challenges, if anything, are even worse, even more pronounced. And also there's a better understanding of how interconnected they are, you know, and we're seeing it now, how impacts on food supply then impacts, you know, inflation and that impacts, you know, politics and that impacts security. Um, and, and, and some, you know, some of the tensions that we're seeing in the world right now sort of have at their core arguments over resources and, and energy and petro states flexing their muscles. And, and it all plays into the, the slightly terrifying um, sense of instability that we have at the moment. And I wonder if you could, I mean, you kind of, like, I guess, mentioned a few things there, but I wonder what you would attribute this, that, that, that push to that change to. to. Yeah, there, there's absolutely, I think the, the key date and the key sort of tipping point, but it's not just because of what happened there, but it is the, the Paris Climate Summit in 2015, uh, when the world, you know, world leaders, that every country in the world signed onto the Paris Agreement. And, you know, it really felt like, and it, it felt like at the time and has proven to be been since a real kind of high watermark for multilateralism, where you actually had countries that were in opposition on multiple other issues coming together to act in the world's sort of best long-term interests and committing to a treaty that is very complicated, but when you unpack it to its core, commits to, you know, net zero emissions, effectively the full decarbonisation of the economy um, with some potential continued emissions and negative emissions down the line. But, you know, basically the full decarbonisation of the economy within <clears throat> 30 to 40 years. And that moment, I think, was really significant because it sort of gave that kind of political backing um, to the the transformation that, that, that we need to make sent that policy signal around the world that this is something that the world's biggest markets were committed to. Uh, but also the the reason I think governments felt comfortable making that commitment was it came at a time where the technology had advanced just enough and had proven itself just enough that they could have confidence that making this commitment wasn't a pipe dream that, that, that you know, you could see a, you could see a feasible path by which you could decarbonize first energy and transport and then later down the line things like aviation and heavy industry and some of the things that are more challenging so you kind of created this virtuous circle where the private sector 
had started to prove that it was possible. And then in Paris, the the governments and the, the policymakers came together and said, okay, you've proven it's possible. We're willing to try and provide you with the framework and the subsidies and the policies to allow you to, to, to now advance it. Um, and they, they've started to do that, albeit very, very imperfectly. And then from there, that then did unlock this sort of huge surge in investment and clean tech R&D and all these other things that have happened in the last five or six years that, again, it's, it becomes this self-perpetuating circle. They, they prove that it works. They prove that it can be done at lower cost, and that gives the politicians more confidence that they can advance it further, and it gives consumers more confidence that this stuff works. And, and you're starting to see that kind of technology revolution playing out. Um, so I think that that very much was that, that period around 2015 um, was the key date. You've, but you've mentioned, um, interestingly, uh, you just kind of juxtapose what you just said. You, you've mentioned before that that um, climate tech investment seems to be kind of dipping a little bit, um, sort of in, in more recent times, just, I guess, down to, you know, lack, uh, lack of certainty. But I wonder what, what you would attribute that to and what kind of effect is that having? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not ideal. I think that the, there was a report out very recently from PwC uh, that suggested that venture capital and private equity investment in climate tech had fallen um, by about 40% last year, uh, which sounds terrible. But then it actually in context, uh, VC investment in everything fell 50%. So, you know, climate tech is still a favoured sector, is still a, a relative growth sector. Uh, the problem is that, you know, all of those investors are retrenching because particularly in the UK, but also elsewhere, you know, post COVID, you are getting a higher interest rate environment. You are getting these economic headwinds and a bit of a dent to confidence. And obviously, you know, the investment community thrives on confidence. That's, you know, they are making bets. They want to feel like the bets that they're making are going to pay off. So, um, so yeah, I think that, you know, the, the slowdown that has happened there um, is, is primarily, you know, a factor of wider investment trends and wider economic trends. The good news is, as I said, it's still seen as a huge opportunity. Uh, there's lots of reasons to think it will bounce back quite quickly. And when you look beyond the VC and private equity market, levels of investment in mature clean technologies, in renewables, in electric vehicles all around the world, that's still growing very, very rapidly. Um, you know, we're at sort of near record levels of investment uh, the the green bonds market, both sovereign bonds and private sector bonds, that's going to set a new record this year, close to a trillion dollars. Um, you know, the, there's there's lots and lots of capital being deployed um, all around the world, particularly in solar and wind, because those technologies are now incredibly cost effective. And then beyond that, we're seeing batteries, energy storage, electric vehicles coming on behind. So, um, yeah, we're not we're never progressing fast enough on this agenda, but that you know there is really really significant progress happening so i guess in terms of of from like a business perspective you've spoken before as well about how there's an increasing number of green roles um in and, and jobs in within these these businesses i wonder if you could talk a little bit about what kind of roles they are and, and where we're seeing them pop up yes yeah, so, i mean this is uh, i mean there's a huge green jobs boom going on sort of whichever every month there seems to be a new report about the level of recruitment you know salaries increasing um, and, and indeed skill shortages in, in many sectors. What's interesting about the green economy and these types of green jobs is um, the green economy is not like a sort of vertical sector. It's not like we're talking about cars or, or planes or whatever it may be, or health. We, it is a kind of cross-economy project. It touches upon absolutely everything. 
So as a result, you know, there is a, an argument that's almost every job's a green job in many ways. You know, everyone's everyone's going to have a role to play in the net zero transition because it is happening as a whole economy project. So, that, that, you know, there's an element there for everything. Um, in terms of the types of jobs, in, in the variation's huge. So you've kind of got corporate jobs where you've got like heads of sustainability, chief sustainability officers, environmental managers, um, obviously, you know, legal lawyers, marketing, PR, comms, all of those types of jobs can have varying degrees of environmental um, and, and green credentials. Um, and, and then obviously you, then you get into the more technical jobs. So, you know, the energy industry has said it, to decarbonize and build out the kind of the nuclear, the renewables, um, the, the grid infrastructure that we need to deliver that massive upgrade to, to, to our kind of our power system and our, our wider energy system, that will net create tens and tens of thousands of jobs. Um, you, you will see obviously you'll see some jobs lost in fossil fuel industries as though in, as those industries go into decline but those jobs will be more than replaced in terms of the numbers uh, from new jobs in renewables uh, smart grids and other technologies um, and and same dynamics happening in multiple industries so you know we've got if any environmental issues you're looking at water you're looking at waste um, you're you're looking at um, automotive transport public transport um all of these sectors are investing R&D money or project money, project, you know, capital investment in in decarbonisation and net zero associated projects. And, and that will create with it a lot of jobs, uh, particularly in that kind of science, technology, engineering sphere. Um, and obviously the flip side of that opportunity is there is considerable concern that, you know, the UK and lots of other economies have a bit of a perennial STEM skill shortage um, and, and there is concern in a lot of these industries that, you know, we do need to improve the pipeline of people coming into that sector, developing those STEM skills and um, and, and, and wanting to work or, or being able, not, not just wanting, being able to, having the qualifications and the skills that are needed to deliver those types of projects. And so then would I be right in assuming like it's not all just like uh, flashy new startups? There's obviously legacy businesses and brands are also jumping in on this trend as well and and... and... I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how those kind of like legacy um, brands are innovating. What kind of things are they doing other than just creating these roles? It is, as I said, it's a real, real mix there. So, I mean, if you take um, you take the energy industry as a sort of prime example, there you've kind of had a couple of challenger brands come in in the UK and the likes of Ovo and Octopus, and they're innovating in terms of the you know their the the types of energy services they're offering, the fact they're trying to deliver only renewable power expanding out the renewable space so they, so you kind of have these challenger brands that are breaking through you have these startups that are providing really exciting technologies but then obviously yeah the incumbents um have to move with the times and they're changing and so we've seen um all of the incumbents in kind of the big six energy companies starting to invest in their own renewables assets i mean even the oil and gas industry you're seeing start to develop renewables divisions and clean tech divisions um the, and 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 sort of building out uh, that they're kind of you know diversifying as well, looking at what they can provide in terms of electric vehicle charging and all these other areas. So the big incumbents are you know making those investments. The same's happening in the automotive industry. So the likes of Ford, um, Jaguar, Land Rover, uh, and and the, you know the Volkswagen. The list goes on and on and on. That BMW and they're they're all developing electric vehicle ranges. Currently, those sit alongside their internal combustion engine ranges, but the plan is over time to phase out one and phase up the other. So, you know, they are 
making that transition, um, you know, partly because they recognize it's the way to go, partly because there's policy pressure and consumer pressure, but then also because, as you said, those, those startups are nipping at their heels. It's kind of this classic dynamic that you get in, um, you get in industry. Speaking of um, sort of legacy brands, and um, I wonder if you saw um, Apple's recent Mother Nature video. Um, I, I, I didn't actually catch it. I saw that it created a bit of a buzz on, uh, on social media, but I didn't actually get a chance to watch it um, in total, unfortunately. It was a really, really um, quite creative way, I think, of kind of talking about their new policies and, and how they're working towards becoming carbon neutral. It was a really, really good way of doing it. However, um, that, that stir that you mentioned, a lot of people kind of at the same time as, praising, as, as the praise they received, they also received a lot of accusations of greenwashing. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what greenwashing means and, and you know, are, are these brands down if they do and down if they don't? Like, how do they navigate that space? Yeah, it's it's a really, it's a, it's a bit of a tricky one. Greenwash is a real, really quite complicated topic because it's quite a vague term. So, it, it, it you know, it applies to the idea of you misleading somebody about your green credentials where you're trying to put a green gloss over what you're doing and pretend that it's greener than it is. Um, but obviously, you know, that's a really broad concept. So you've got situations where companies are like really deliberately greenwashing and basically lying about what their product does and saying that it's greener than it actually is and deliberately misleading people, which is obviously wrong. And that results in lots of complaints to advertising standards authorities or competition or regulators. And you almost invariably end up getting a slap wrist from the regulators if you try and do that. Where it gets much more complicated is where you've got companies that are sort of saying that they're doing something green and doing so in good faith, but this is a really, really complicated transition. And the thing they're doing might be controversial in some areas, or it might be quite green, but not fully green, or as often happens with, with the sort of bigger companies like Apple as a prime example, that, you know, it's doing some really good stuff, but then it's, it's still got a you know, it's got a supply chain that still has impacts. It still has energy use that has impacts. It still has all these various problems give, that you get associated with any large business. And and the question then becomes, well, is that is that greenwash? Or is that just a sort of, you know, we're all part of the economy. The economy has issues and we're all kind of in some ways guilty of having these impacts as a result. Um, and nobody really quite knows the answer. So, you know, environmental campaigners will, that's what they're there for. They will continue to push for higher standards and shame companies that they think aren't at the highest possible level. And of course, by definition, that will be 99% of companies. You, you know, there, there's always improvements that can be made. So the the pressure will be enormous um, from campaign groups for any large corporate. I think that's just the way it is. The, the worry is what happens then is that some companies will get into a defensive crouch and say, we don't want to do anything. We don't want to, we don't want to take that risk. We don't want to put our head above the parapet. And that, there's this phenomenon that some people have called green hushing, where you go quiet um, in a desperate hope that you avoid um, being hauled over the coals by Greenpeace. And you don't talk about what you're doing because you don't want it to be scrutinized. Um, but I think there's a general consensus amongst communications professionals and certainly amongst more a lot of environmental campaigners as well is that that would be a bit of a mistake is that we need companies to be talking openly and honestly about what they're doing and promoting their green measures because we want to kind of normalize these technologies and we want to get them out in front of people and we want them to be bought and deployed that's what needs to happen um 
So I think there's a, there's a there's a, a, a bit of a need for companies to just accept that there will be some criticism, um, try and uh, preempt it as much as possible, to be open and transparent about where there are shortfalls in what they're doing, um, and make it clear that they understand that this is a process that they're trying to improve all the time, but they're not pretending to be perfect. I think the problems come when companies really do exaggerate what they're doing and, and sort of try and pretend that it's brilliant when everyone knows that there are still imperfections and issues there. So just to piggyback off of that, actually, do you think then, for example, mandating businesses to disclose their carbon emissions, like, for example, what's recently happened in the state of California, is a positive step or is it one step too far? What do you think about that, I wonder? I think it's a really positive step. I think it's going to continue to happen. Already, the vast majority of listed companies are reporting on their emissions voluntarily through things like the CDP platform and other voluntary initiatives. So this data is already being deployed and investors are insisting they want it. So you're getting more and more pressure from investors to say, look, we want this information. This is a material risk to us if you don't have a credible decarbonisation strategy. We need to know that management are engaged with it. So that's why these rules have come about because investors want that information. They want to be able to know that a company what its footprint is where its exposure is to things like carbon taxes and other issues and how they're responding to it so i think we will see more of it and it has to be positive because if some companies are doing it voluntarily you kind of want a level playing field you don't want company other companies being able to sort of hide away and not dispose this information um and this information is material because if a company isn't working out how it's going to fit into the net zero transition, it is putting capital at risk in the long term because the transition is happening whether anyone likes it or not, basically. Do you have any kind of opinions or, or thoughts on what challenges the, the UK in particular faces in terms of um, you know reaching net zero infrastructure, the housing stock that we have, listed buildings, etc.? The UK is in a fascinating position, actually. It's, it's, firstly, it's it has a pretty good track record on this. Um, you know, it, it's decarbonized since 1990. It's decarbonized faster than any other G20 economy, um, which is quite a remarkable statistic. Not many people are aware of it, but it's true. Like the, the UK is out there in the lead, partly because, well, mainly because we closed our coal power plants and, and other countries, a lot of other countries haven't done that yet. Even since 2015, we're, I think we're in second place behind Germany. So we have delivered really significant emissions reductions in this country over the last 20, 25 years, um, primarily through the power system. We're also well positioned to continue to do that because, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of structural things that make the UK quite an interesting net zero hub, if you like. So we've got really good renewable energy resources because it's windy, basically. We have significant wind. Uh, we have a lot. We're surrounded by seas that are relatively shallow uh, that, again, gives us a lot of capacity for offshore wind. Um, we have a really good engineering base. Um, you know, we've got the nuclear industry, uh, we've got academics, we've got a financial centre in London. And of course, we're a relatively small country. So we haven't kind of got the the reliance on, you know, short haul aviation that, that other larger countries have. So there's lots of things that kind of point to the fact that, I mean, I've, I've written pieces in the past that sort of say, if not here, where? You know, if, if you can't fully decarbonise in a what is a wealthy industrialized country that's relatively small and has a strong skills base and renewables resource. Well, if you can't do it here, you're really going to struggle to do it anywhere. So there's there's lots of things going for us on that front. Um, and also we've had a political consensus on it to date. So all parties, with a handful of exceptions, 
are really supportive of the agenda. Um, and again, that hasn't been the case in other Anglosphere countries where you've seen in the US and Australia in particular, you know, the politicization of climate action and, you know, climate skeptics basically in power in government. You know, we haven't had that in the UK. Uh, the two main parties do disagree on how best to go about it, but, you know, you haven't had a climate skeptic prime minister saying this is all nonsense. Um, there is a broad commitment to it. So that's the good side. Um, the, the, the slightly more worrying part is the next phase of the transition will be harder by definition. You know, it's, it's, it's not easy, but it's possible to sort of cut your emissions in half as an economy by transitioning to clean power, um, by transitioning to electric vehicles and the like. When you start to get into decarbonizing buildings and decarbonizing heat and decarbonizing heavy industry and aviation and shipping, all of that is just a tougher engineering challenge. There are lots of solutions available that have been developed and are being developed, but you know, they're earlier stage, they cost more. And and particularly in the case of buildings, you know, they are intrusive. They require significant work. And 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 here the UK doesn't have as much as an advantage because we have a really old, varied building stock and we have quite substantial kind of industrial hubs around sort of chemicals and steel and other areas that are going to be challenging to decarbonize. So the the big kind of question for the next 10 15 years the next kind of two or three parliaments is how do we a complete the first phase which we haven't done yet and build out more renewables quickly fully electrified ground transport and make those huge changes and complete that first phase but then also really start to advance the second phase which is you know heat pumps in every home improving the energy efficiency of every building switching to hydrogen or carbon capture and storage at industrial plants and and these are inherently more challenging more costly um undertakings than than the first phase of the transition uh, the good news is that a lot of modeling suggests the costs will come down you know you will get a net benefit you'll get lower energy bills because you'll be losing yes using less energy and you'll be using less gas and the so there's lots of long-term benefits, but it's a classic kind of invest-to-grow model where you have to make the upfront investment to then unlock the long-term benefits. And at a time when um, you know the Treasury is under pressure, that's that that becomes quite a difficult political task. That's a really brilliant answer. Thank you. Very very detailed answer actually. Um, I wonder if you could tell us what your just to kind of bring this all to a close. What your top three um, green tech innovations? Um, have been over the last like couple of years wow top three um i think so i mean the 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 big the big transformational one has been solar pv and obviously that's not that's not a new technology by any stretch that's been around for decades but the absolute um scale of the cost reduction the fact that it's kind of got to a level of kind of moore's law level emission um reductions in prices um has been transformational and you've gone to a position that in many countries in the world now, the cheapest new power generation that you can add is solar. Um, and in some other countries, it's wind. So, you know, I, I think I think there's been studies done that in the vast majority of major markets, the cheapest form of new power generation is renewables. It's not building a gas power plant. It's not building a coal power plant. So you're starting to win out on the pure economics, even before you consider the environmental implications. So I think, you know, there's lots of people saying the solar boom is just going to transform the 21st century and i think that's absolutely true and coupled to that is obviously the battery boom as well so if you if you've got low power solar and you're starting to get low power battery energy storage 
and you can say with confidence that these technologies will give you sort of 24-hour power uh, reliability, then, you know, the, the ripple out effect from that on the energy market is absolutely enormous. I think the other one that is, is much more early stage but is, is fascinating is the stuff going on in alternative protein. And it's a, it's a broad field, but we've kind of got, you've got, um, you know, lab-grown meats, you've got precision fermentation, which is another one they talk about. You've got, you know, some of these other technologies, pea protein and other things that are being developed. And again, if that can scale and the cost can come down as, as is hoped, you will end up with uh, an absolutely, you know, huge transformation in the agricultural sector because you will, you know, you'll be able to just reduce the impact on land use um, beyond recognition. So I think that's very, very, very cool. Um, and then the others, I mean, it just yeah, there's just so, so many, but maybe the final one would be the stuff that's going on in zero emission flight. Back when Business Green started, or even actually only 10 years ago, five, six years ago, you told, tell people that you could get a zero emission commercial plane in the air and they would just laugh at you and just say, it's not possible. It's, it's got to be fossil fuels. There is no credible path. And then in the last few years, we have seen test flights going on with admittedly small aircraft, but zero emission aircraft that can co cover six, 700 miles. So you're starting to get to a position where the idea of short haul flights that with no emissions is is feasible. And, we're, and, and then really excitingly, we're starting to see the big developers, Boeing and Airbus and others, working on projects where they think maybe we could have hydrogen jets that could, you know, start to give you even long haul flight without emissions. And the, the, the pace of change that's going on there is just really exciting and potentially transformational. Well, that's all for this very first episode of TI Talks. Big thanks to James Murray for being our very special first ever guest. We hope you've enjoyed. I've been Ricky, your host for today, and we'll see you next time. Stay informed.